Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand a hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, Yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. 
Enjoy the show. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Janice Poon is the person to call when you need edible amniotic fluid for the fictional birth of the devil. As Hollywood's go-to expert for gruesome and sometimes challenging food styling, she takes us behind the scenes of some of her most famous creations, such as the 30-foot Subway sandwich, fake meat for a vegan vampire, and arm escargot using real snails. Yes, there was a snail wrangler. The snails are so, I mean, talk about divas. They want to go left, and you can't make them go right. They were always crawling in the wrong direction. It took forever to get that shot. Also on the show, Bianca Bosker wonders what makes a PB&J the perfect sandwich, and we make a Vietnamese beef stew with lemongrass. But first, it's my interview with George Motes. He's the host of the online series, Burger Scholar Sessions. George, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. You're a professor of burgers. Um, at least that's one way to describe it. You're not a fan of big chains. You're looking for something quite different. So what are your rules about what defines a great American burger joint? Well, to me, a great American burger joint is one that takes the craft and the history very seriously. There, I mean, there have been chains that have been around for a long time, of course, as we know. Uh, but some of the best to me are the mom and pops in small towns that have just been doing it the same way they've been doing it for sometimes four and five generations. We're talking about places that the ownership has probably stayed in the same family most of the time, fresh meat. Are there any other rules about how they prepare the burgers or anything else? Yeah, to me, I mean, obviously fresh meat is number one on the list. You have to use fresh meat. Uh, Frozen beef is a big no-no in my book. And there are a lot of places that have been around for a long time that are unfortunately still using frozen meat. That's a big rule. Another one is that you have to appreciate your own history. There are a lot of regional burger specialties out there that are are true to themselves because they've stayed so true to their core and the original burger that they may have made over 100 years ago. And there's a quote here. It says, Moat says, ketchup is the worst thing you can put on a burger, end quote, right? You know, it's funny. I'm not being contrarian. It's actually true. I think that a hamburger is so much greater than ketchup. Ketchup is very sweet. And unfortunately, ketchup, when it comes to the hamburger, has a very bad history, I believe. Arguably, it was introduced by chains in the 40s to get kids, get children, excited about hamburgers. Add a little bit of a sweet component to a hamburger, and the the idea is the kids would eat their burgers more. But to me, ketchup on a burger is okay if it's mixed into a sauce. If it's just on there directly, it's just, it's a really, really horrible condiment to add to a burger on its own. Okay, the burgers. You say Dyer's deep fries its burgers, and they've been recycling its grease for about 90 years now. <laughs> so so tell me about the deep fried burger. Yeah, Actually, we think it's probably over 100 years, I think, at this point. So yeah, they've been deep frying burgers in what they say is the original grease from, from day one. It sounds insane to deep fry a burger, but if you think about it, in the beginning, there were no flat tops. There were no flame grills you'd find in your backyard. In the very beginning, people made burgers in skillets. But the problem, of course, is that burger grease or the rendered beef fat tallow would collect when you'd end up deep frying your burgers. Um, steam burgers in Connecticut, uh, you say it's it's ugly, but it's also one of the tastiest. I mean, if you like a deep fried burger, it would seem to me a steam burger is at the opposite end of the uh, the burger rainbow. Right? Definitely the opposite, for sure. Uh, it is a it's an amazing burger experience because when you bite into this burger, it's so moist. 
Uh, and it, it, it's just, it's a very beefy experience. And uh, with, of course, the, the upside to this is that it's not just about the beef. If you, if you go to places in, in uh, central Connecticut, like a place called Ted's in Meriden, what they'll actually do is they'll take a block of cheddar cheese, very mild, melty cheddar cheese, and they'll steam that as well and pour that on top of the <laughs> this sort of gray mm. block, this this very soft gray matter. If you think about it also, it's very close to the kind of meat you'd find in a dumpling, which is also steamed. Right. So let's talk about the Butterburger. What is a Butterburger? Only, of course, in Wisconsin can you can you have a Butterburger. <laughs> right, of course. The Butterburger, you know, the fewer ingredients you have, they all have to be the best ingredients you can find. And if you have a burger that has nothing on it than beef, bun, and butter, that better be good butter, right? <laughs> but, but I think you point out that the butter, you don't want it to melt, though. So when you eat it, it's still supposed to be solid, right? Yeah, I mean, if you go to a place like Solly's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they make sure that they get that burger to your place at the counter as fast as possible because they know that the real experience is being able to bite into this semi-soft butter that's, that's still in that state before it melts completely. And also, once once the, once a butter burger um, becomes melty, uh, it, it destroys the bottom of the bun anyway. So you have to eat the burger pretty fast. But the one thing you do find yourself doing if you're at Solly's is that you do take you know the, your half-eaten burger and you dip it back into the into the melted butter on the plate and it's it's impossible not to uh the nut burger okay so really you you take crushed sunday nuts put them in a coffee cup and stir it with a bit of miracle whip then ladle it onto the burger you want to defend that one to me yeah i just I this know. is the, <laughs> the specialty of the house of a place called matt's place uh in butte montana uh, and it really is uh, one of those uh, things I, I've assumed was not going to work. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Miracle Whip, and especially I was thinking of nuts on my burger. It didn't make a lot of sense. But the idea of like, you know, we all love, you know, uh, salted peanuts, you know, on, if you want, if you have it on ice cream or whatever. And it made sense on ice cream for me, but I not in a burger. But then I tried it, and then I said, okay, this is definitely the reason people buy this and order this burger at Matt's Place, because it is that good. And it's, again, it's only three ingredients. It's very simple. Unlike the San Antonio bean burger with Fritos, Cheese Whiz, and refried beans on top of your burger, right? Right. That is a hyper-regional specialty of San Antonio, Texas right there. Refried beans on top of the burger with uh, nacho cheese sauce or melted cheddar or something and corn chips. Or in, in the original case, it was Fritos. You seem to find a lot of charm in the Mississippi Slug Burger. It's kind of an interesting story. You want to describe what that is? Yeah, the Slug Burger— uh, goes back, I think it's before the Depression. Uh, there were, you know, hard times in the South. They were trying to find ways to stretch their meat. And what made the most sense was to take yesterday's bread and add it to the meat. There's some weird science going on there that nobody understood, I guess, at the beginning, which makes perfect sense, is that when, once you add breadcrumbs to meat and you start to cook it on a flat top, all that rendered beef fat goes into the crumbled bread and makes it a crunchy, very flavorful burger. Let's go back to the places you celebrate on your show. Um, these are mom and pop places, generally speaking. How do they fit into this new generation? And they want to know the origin of the meat and the bun. And it seems to be they're almost antithetical to that whole concept of telling the story. The story is that it's a mom and pop place that's been in their family for two generations, right? That's the story. The problem is every single mom and pop that I've become friends with in America, a lot of times they don't know their own value. They don't even know why they're important right. to the bigger picture. They don't know why someone else is copying their burger in Argentina or why somebody is, you know, wants to get them on the phone for an interview in Japan. They have no idea why. And I, I find that fascinating. So are they going to 
be relics of the America's culinary past at some point in the near future? Or do you think they're in for a period of renewal because that's where the market's headed? They're unquestionably in for a period of renewal, and I believe it's going to last for a little while here because people are start. People want real things. People actually want to know that the thing they're eating or the experience they're having is is authentic, and uh, these places actually help make that authentic moment real. George, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for being on Mill Street. Thanks for having me. That was George Motes. He's the host of Burger Scholar Sessions and also author of The Great American Burger Book. Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Moulton and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Hi, Sarah. Do you want to take the first call? Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Amy from Raleigh. How can we help you today? So I have a question about the differences between black pepper and white pepper. I recently started using white pepper. This just, I saw it online and was like, I don't really know what the difference is, but I'm going to go ahead and try it. I've noticed that it seems to work better on salads and like raw stuff rather than in cooking. So I was just wondering if there's any like hard and fast rules on when to use black pepper and when to use white pepper. Let's start with your opinion. Why do you think it works better on salads and vegetables? When you say better, what do you mean? It seemed to like release a different type of flavor. Like, I guess it wasn't as harsh as black peppercorns. It was weird because it seemed subtle, but it also seemed to stand out. (laughs) I know. It's very interesting. Okay, well, black peppercorn still has the husk on it. So it's harvested and then it's dried. And the white peppercorn has the outer layer removed and then it's dried. And so it's sort of like those components that are in that outer layer, the black part of the pepper, are what give black pepper, I think it's, I would say, almost pungency or pop, Mm -hmm. you know. White pepper, although you said, you know, it's interesting, it still seems spicy, but it's a different kind. Asian cultures really use white pepper a lot, Chinese cooking. Chris, what do you want to say about this? Well, there's nothing wrong with black pepper. It has its place, but white pepper is more floral. It's more complex. It's more fleeting. You know, it doesn't last as long as pepper will in the mouth. So I would just think of them as spices in the cabinet along with the other spices. For subtlety and aroma, I would go with white pepper. And a black pepper is, you know, more to hit you over the head with something strong. Right, Sarah? Yeah, I'd actually agree with all of that. What? Um, yeah, I know. What's going on? I agree. <laughs> but there's also, I mean, there's Aleppo pepper. or Urfa. There's, uh, Urfa pepper, which is fabulous, which is sort of soft flakes, which is kind of chocolatey. I mean, there's Cambodian peppers, which are totally different. So I just think there's a whole world of peppers out there, dried peppers. And I should do an ad for the, the Pepper Institute, right? Yes, you should. A whole new world of peppers. <laughs> but uh, you're right. White and black are very different. So There's no hard and fast rule. It's really a matter of preference. And we keep a pepper grinder on your counter with white and then one with black. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have both sitting on my counter right now, and I've been kind of using them alternately. (laughs) Good for you. Okay. Well, this was an interesting conversation. Thanks, Amy. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for calling. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help solving a culinary mystery, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843, or email us at questions 
at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mary from Lebanon, New Hampshire. Hi, Mary. What can we do for you today? First, I want to say that I enjoy your show and I appreciate the opportunity to have a question that I had on my mind for a while. Happy to be here. Oh, wonderful. All right. I always hear about cooking my bacon in the oven instead of on the stovetop. My concern with doing this is that it would spatter in the oven and I would need to clean my oven more frequently. I have a self-cleaning oven and hate wasting the electricity to run the cleaning cycle more frequently. Can you help me with that? Years ago, I taught at this school called Peter Kump's New York Cooking School, and that was the first I'd ever heard about baking bacon. I thought it was so weird. And the reason he suggested that we teach that way was uh, to have the bacon not cook in its own fat and also to have it lie flat. Right. You know, when you cook bacon in a pan, it all curls up. Oh, exactly. So the way we did it, you line your sheet pan with sides, you know, like a large jelly roll pan, Mm -hmm. with foil. And then I put a cake rack in it, or a square cookie rack, really, that fits inside. Right. I don't just put the bacon right on the foil. Right. I put it on the rack. And then I lay out the bacon with a little space in between. And then just bake it that way. And as long as you don't bake it at too high a temperature, you can go with 350, 375. It won't spatter. Especially if it's lined with foil, you should be just fine. And the bacon really comes out beautifully. Oh, that's Sarah, didn't you just make a broiler? I mean, certainly you could use a broiler pan. Yeah. Certainly you could, and then it would be enclosed. But the holes in the top, they're too narrow. Well, that's The thing true. with a cookie rack is that there's so much more room for the fat to come down. I did find, I read somewhere that you could, in a skillet, I add some water to the skillet when cooking bacon on the stovetop. And that avoids a lot of the splattering at the beginning, but also the bacon turns out to be ah, flat. Interesting. Because it gives you a sort of even layer of liquid to cook it in. And then, of course, the water, right. you know, evaporates over time. That seems huh. to work out pretty huh. well, too. Okay. All right, right. Well, That's there's two wonderful. two possibilities. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks, Mary. Thank you so Thanks, much. Thanks, Mary. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, food stylist Janice Poon tells us how she feeds cannibals and aliens. That's right up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, 
crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just <sighs> like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with food stylist Janice Poon. She got her start working on the Nero Wolf TV series. She later developed a specialty for making horror and science fiction dishes on the sets of the Hannibal TV series, Star Trek Discovery, American Gods, and more. Janice, welcome to Mill Street. Oh, I'm just so thrilled to be here. You have quite a CV, but my favorite description of you is, quote, the expert to call when you need edible amniotic fluid for the fictional birth of the devil. <laughs> now that's like, did you ever think your career would come down to that description? You know, so often I find myself looking up and saying, how did this happen to me? Where have I gone wrong where I find myself, you know, knee deep in amniotic fluid or, or loose oatmeal, really, a lot of loose oatmeal. 
So you're an unlikely person, I guess, because you grew up in a small Canadian town. Your family ran restaurants. You thought at the time you would never want to get involved with food again. You'd pretty much had it, right? So I think my grandfather won a restaurant in a Mahjong game or something and was <laughs> having a terrible time. And, and, but my dad sort of took it over when he was like 16 and um, made a go of it and built, hmm. you know, what was considered in our very small town, a kind of an empire. But I do know a lot about food because when you grow up in a restaurant, and of course, small family restaurant means that you're doing all the mise en place before you go to school, that sort of thing. And um, so I, I thought I would be an artist because I thought that was pretty far away from food. So I took commercial art classes and promptly went to work for one of those big fat ad agencies. But what um, happened to me is that fate decided to throw food accounts at me. Hmm. So all of my accounts were, you know, like McDonald's, Kraft. And there was always this person in the kitchen toiling away doing really bizarre things to the food to make it look natural. And I, and I just thought, well, that, that's just kind of hilarious. So how did you get your first styling gig on the Nero Wolf TV series? So um, I was busily doing something else, as I always am. I probably was having a store at the time, or maybe I was designing ball gowns for princesses. I can't remember. <laughs> but a dear friend of mine was offered the job, and um, she just didn't feel up for it. And she said, well, is it something you'd be interested in? Would, do you think you could do it? And I thought, you know, why not? And thankfully, I managed to get through without being discovered as a um, neophyte. But, but Nero Wolf, I've, I've read all of his books like five times. Oh, he, he's, he's wonderful. He was a great gourmand and gourmet. Yeah, he yeah. had a private chef, as I remember. And yeah, it was Fritz. actually Fritz, and he had a Nero Wolf cookbook, was actually published later on. But yes. so th this was not humdrum. This was in hamburgers. I mean, he, this is pretty serious food, right? It was, but it, and it was so much fun. But I didn't just leap into food styling for episodic television and then just stay there. After Nero Wolf, I was probably doing sculptures for restaurants and hotels at that time. This is your 30-foot Subway sandwich period? Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> oh, Christopher, you know everything. Well, I was just <laughs> saying, it, it's a long way from your oh, Wolf goodness. TV series to the 30-foot <laughs> Subway sandwich. <laughs> you know what's funny about that? I was um, making this 30-foot Subway. And, of course, I live in a 20-foot loft. I, so I was building the Subway sandwich literally on my stairs, <laughs> on a slope. So let's get back to movies for a second. Yeah. You say that movie food has to be edible because if the director wants them to be eating on camera, they have to have that option. Is that why it has to be edible? Yes, yes, because you might think, and it might say in the script, that um, David digs into a delicious roast turkey. But David, the actor, doesn't feel like eating roast turkey. And then he picks something on the table that you've only got three of <laughs> and says, I feel like my character would eat this. Oh, boy. I remember once that happened to me with broccoli. At the last minute, I thought, I'm just going to throw this piece of broccoli on as a garnish. Yeah. And everything is fine, except that the actor decided the broccoli was what he wanted to eat. And, you know, they do sometimes take 20 times to get their lines. Right. So you have to sit the same dish over and over and over again. Then you get somebody like Gillian Anderson, who must have downed three dozen oysters in one show, like a crazy 
number of oysters in a shoot. I don't know if you know a lot about the history of this, but has food styling in the last 30, 40 years changed dramatically? I would assume, given technology and other things, it has. Oh, listen, I have been at this for a while. And I remember back in the day, like a big TV was like, you know, 20 inches. We did a scene once and the director decided that we didn't have enough people eating in the in the restaurant, in the background, that he wanted to see more food. And we didn't have more food. <laughs> uh, he said, well, how about salad? Yeah, yeah, salad's okay. Serve them all salad. So we just um, had a bunch of food coloring and colored a, a bunch of uh, paper towels and crinkled <laughs> it up. <laughs> I know, it's terrible, isn't it? Really? Would I lie to you, Christopher? Well, no, no but I so mean, many paper towels for have, salad, oh, for yeah, lettuce? You could really? get away with stuff like that. Yeah. So let's take a left turn into the horror genre. So you show up on the Hannibal TV set on the first day. You show up with a bunch of pig's lungs, right? <laughs> I know. And then you go on and say, do you want a grizzly bruised lung that's purple and frightening, or do you want something lovely and pink and almost a pillow? So these are the kinds of considerations you bring yeah. to the fore on the set. Yeah, yeah. We were really just new into the series and everybody was just trying to figure out the sensibility. Like, was it gory horror or was it a romance? <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing that's so magical about film, about TV and movies, is that it is highly collaborative. You know, I was taking inspiration from the costume designers and from the set designer. And it's like a little, you know, jazz thing going on. So one of your most famous uh, food creations is the arm escargot. <laughs> exactly what does that mean? <laughs> well, of course. I mean, there are grisly things done neath the midnight sun, and snails eating flesh is one of them. That A lot of people don't know that uh, snails are, are not that fussy about what they eat. But there's a great <laughs> long history, of course, as well with snails, where the Romans had, um, what did they call them? Well, anyway, little snail farms. Uh, cochlear gardens, that's what they called them. They didn't call them little snail farms because they're much classier than that, right? And they would feed snails certain types of things so they would taste a certain way. But you actually had real snails in this? You had a snail oh wrangler? Yes, I there mean, was a snail wrangler. The snails are so, I mean, talk about divas. They want <laughs> to go, you know, left and you can't make them go right. And it's hard to figure out what, like, do they go towards the heat? They were always crawling the wrong direction. It took forever to get that shot. Um, I think the most disgusting thing, oddly enough, though, on your blog was the fake innards for roadkill. Oh, those were so cute. How well, can they, you yeah, say but, they were? Well, it, it looked like someone had just run over a chipmunk and well. all his guts spewed out. <laughs> well, another example you talk about, I love this. You have a vegan vampire <laughs> oh my God. I know. You know, talk, like, talk about why? bad casting. Yeah. I know. Her character is a vampire queen, of course, and she's visiting her unknowing next door neighbor. And the next door neighbor is making hamburger meatballs. And our vampire queen hasn't had a drink in quite a long time. And she sees this bloody meat and she, her little hand just, you know, snakes out to grab it and gobble it while the neighbor's back is turned. And our actress wouldn't eat ground meat, of course. And so I made some out of, you know, beets and potatoes, and, and it looked exactly like ground meat, so much so that when she got to set, she wouldn't eat it because it looked too much. Too real. Too, too real. So they um, shot it a different way so she could just um, 
hide behind her hair or something. <laughs> so space whale steaks. I think you did this on Star Trek Discovery. How do you make those? What are they made out of? Making giant space whale meat is not a problem. Making giant space whale meat for a vegetarian actor is a problem. <laughs> but if there were not such problems, I would not have a job. These challenges are such that I'm the only one who will step forward and say, oh, yeah, that's no problem. Um, I happen to remember a Chinese dessert that my mother used to make out of chestnut flour. Because of what it is with meat, it's got kind of this floppy texture. Right. <laughs> and for a sushi, intergalactical sushi joint, uh, the chef wants to be able to <laughs> slash it into pieces and flick it to the... Um, his customers on the edge of his blade. So it has to be just the right texture. So you get a script and obviously describes the food in very general terms. From an artistic point of view, how do you go from script to actually sketching out the food? Do you, do you actually sketch things out? I mean, physically sketch out? What do you do? Yeah, absolutely physically sketch things out because that helps me see how it fits on a plate. I could see how it fits in perspective. So you, you sketch out the arm escargot and you have notes in the, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in yeah. the margins. Yeah, and lots of times the sketches don't make it to fruition. When it comes to designing, the dish almost designs itself, should I say, because you read the story and you think, why is this scene in this script? Because everything you do has to inform the viewer in some way something more about the plot, something more about the people. Like this particular scene that we just shot, it's, uh, the script just says the emperor sits down for a bowl of soup. And something, a bowl of soup. Why is he having a bowl of soup? Because a bowl of soup is a restorative. He's just been on a long journey through space. And so it's logical that he would have a bowl of soup. He wouldn't have the stomach for a bigger meal. And so what else about this bowl of soup do I want to tell? And I think, well, he's traveling. He is alone because nothing defines an emperor more than aloneness. And he's in space, right? So I wanted the other platters on the very long dining room table to represent planets like floating. I wanted to go for like a lonely space traveler, lonely planet kind of feeling. And so the images come from the idea behind the images. So do you, do you have philosophical discussions with people about which food is right for that situation when the other person doesn't really care whether it's a, an apple or a bowl of soup? Well, I think that it's part of my job to sell. It's not just my job to design the food. It's part of my job to make the actor feel like he's really in the scene, right. to add to the ambience so that he doesn't feel like he's on a set. He feels like he's really in a palace. So you try to make everybody's job easier and... Um, a side uh, benefit is that your food gets noticed. And then the director says, oh, I really want to show that. You love doing this, obviously. You've been doing it a long time. Where's the joy, excitement? Is it the creativity of solving the problem for the food in the script? Is that what it is? That's always fun. But the real joy, weirdly, comes when you avert a massive disaster. Because, well, you know, anybody can make a pretty dish, but the real triumph is when it just seems like 
whatever has occurred has created a problem is so immense that most people would just turn around and walk away. And my father had this idea that he used to say to me, he says, you know what, the best way of approaching your life's work is to look at what's on your plate, metaphorically, take the worst thing and turn that, do what you can to turn that into the best thing. Hmm. And then everything will follow. And so it is when I'm working on the set, you think, what is the worst thing that's happening here? Turn that into the best thing. And then everything else just falls into place. Janice, it's been um, a rare pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you. Well, was that rare or medium rare? I want to know. (laughs) It's always rare, rare. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks. That was food stylist Janice Poon. You know, Klingons enjoy a plate of serpent worms for dinner. And in the film Old Boy, the protagonist eats a live octopus. And of course, Janice Poon has had to make giant space whale meat and fake roadkill guts. But this is nothing new. Humans have always eaten nose to tail, from jellied moose nose to tuna eyeballs to crispy tarantulas to fertilized duck egg. So maybe we ought to suspend the cultural bias. What looks like a plate of writhing worms to me might be an excellent first course to your everyday intergalactic being. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Vietnamese beef stew with star anise and lemongrass. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So it seems to me that when you and I travel the world, we always end up eating chicken soup or beef stew or something <laughs> like that, right? I mean, these are sort of common recipes. So you were in Ho Chi Minh City and did come across a beef stew recipe, but it's wildly different uh, than what I grew up with and what you grew up with. So where did you find the recipe? Let's start with that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually found one of two recipes. I was in what's called District 8 of Ho Chi Minh, and and it's this kind of warren of back alleys and canals, and it's the sort of area where the cooking and the eating spills out of the homes and into the street. And it's really, it's this, it's such a, a, a wonderful community. And, and on top of seeing all these you know, beautiful people talking and gathering, you're getting all their cooking as you're walking around. You're smelling ginger and garlic and fish sauce and lemongrass. And, and I'm being like overwhelmed as I'm walking around. And all of a sudden, a woman pulls up on her bicycle next to me. And on the back of the bike is a simmering cauldron of soup perched right above the rear tire Hmm. and with like red hot coals, keeping it warm. (laughs) And, you know, and it was a beef organ, cinnamon, coconut milk, garlic and vinegar soup. It smelled amazing. And what I learned is it's actually a relative of a stew I was in Ho Chi Minh to learn. I was there to learn bakao, which is a very brothy stew that's flavored with star anise and lemongrass and tons of garlic and ginger and beef brisket. So besides the usual suspects like lemongrass and fish sauce, is it just a function of having those flavor profiles with the indigenous ingredients, or is there something else about this dude that really marks it as different? Well, you know, it is the classic flavor profile of Vietnamese cooking, which is ginger, garlic, fish sauce, lemongrass. And, and it is that combination. But what made it so appealing to me is the intensity of those flavors. I mean, the, you know, the stew uses a five-inch chunk of 
fresh ginger, for example. And, and that's just the start. You know, there's a ton of star anise and lemongrass and all these amazing, wonderful flavors that combine in just in, in, in such copious amounts that you get this strong flavor, but also this strong aroma that's so savory and a little bit sweet. And, and they, it's just the way they combine that really sets it apart. Now, is this served uh, with rice, with a uh you know, a classic baguette is this served with noodles. How do they serve it? They serve it over rice noodles, and that's all done at the table. You know, you bring the soup to the table, and you ladle it over some very tender rice noodles. And, you you know, you throw some garnishes on it, some fresh herbs, and maybe a little bit of chili garlic sauce on it, crank up the heat a little bit. Uh, one of the things that set apart the version that we learned is many recipes call for using coconut milk as part of the broth. But the woman I learned it from, uses coconut water. Hmm. And she likes that because it has the flavor right. of coconut, but without all the heft. So here's an existential question. So you, you, you go to Ho Chi Minh City, have a beef stew that has just these amazing flavor combinations, so unlike what you grew up with. Does that permanently change your view of a recipe like beef stew? Like you'll never go back and make the American version, or is this just another option? I think it has to change it, but I think it changes it for the better. And not necessarily because I would, you know, now only make Vietnamese beef stew. But one, you realize the commonalities that we have across cultures. You know, there are beef stews everywhere. And, and you take this kind of common ingredient and, frankly, a common approach to a common ingredient and, and bring so many different flavors to that same formula. It's, it, it makes me excited to make beef stew of any variety because you know that it's something that you can play with and experiment with and take in so many different directions. Jam, thank you. A Vietnamese beef stew with star anise and lemongrass. Sounds delicious. Thanks. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Vietnamese beef stew with star anise and lemongrass at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Next up, Bianca Bosker upgrades the PB&J. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. 
Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Diana, calling from Vermont. How can we help you today, Diana? This summer... I was canning a lot of rhubarb, and I thought, I have so much canned rhubarb, why don't I try making some rhubarb jam, a rhubarb strawberry. I added strawberries to it. The problem that I ran into was I wasn't able to get it the temperature that was necessary to make it congeal, to make it turn into jam. I think they recommend 220 degrees or so. And I'm not at a particularly high altitude on that. just wondered if you had any suggestions on what I could do to make my jam gel. I don't think it had to do with the altitude. I'm wondering if it had to do with the sugar. You need the right amount of sugar in order to get it up to 220. Did you cut back on the sugar, I wonder? I did cut back on the sugar, yeah, because I don't like things too sweet. Yeah, I think that might have had something to do with it. Also, um, what kind of pot did you use? I was using a stainless steel. Was it a wide pot? Because that helps. Um, no, it wasn't a super wide pot. It was like a two-quart size. Mm-hmm. Chris makes jam, so I'm sure he's ready to just jump right in. I really think probably it had to do with the sugar. Anyway, Chris. Well, I think you're right. I, it's, <laughs> if it's mostly water, it's going to boil at 212 and never get higher. A couple things I've found after years of doing this— I went out and bought a copper pot, and I found that it was expensive. But if you're going to do it on a regular basis, it does make a difference, oddly enough, because it conducts so well. The second thing I found is Mm -hmm. that small batches work better, like making four cups Mm -hmm. at a time. If you make big batches, Mm -hmm. the temperature is going to be inconsistent depending on where you take the temperature. And it's very hard to control, so smaller batches are better. I agree with Sarah about the sugar. And fourth thing is... If you're setting up a pectin, and even though recipes say you don't need pectin for certain things, you do. 
There's a low sugar pectin. It comes in a pink box. You want the low sugar one because otherwise okay. if you use the high sugar pectin, it's not going to set up properly. So that's a little trick that hmm. some people don't know. But I think smaller hmm. amounts, even if you don't have a copper pot, keep the amount small and make sure there's enough sugar in there. And you can still do a low sugar version. But with rhubarb, however, there's so little, you know, you're going to have to use a fair so amount tart. of sugar yeah. to get that up. Also, I don't know how you took the temperature. We're using a instant read thermometer. No, I was using, I think it's called a candy thermometer. Forget those. Those don't work very well. They're too slow to react, I think. And so I would get an instant read thermometer with like a six-inch probe. And that way you can quickly get the temperature. Also, last thing, and I'll shut up, you can can tip the saucepan away from you a little. So when you dip the end of the probe into it, it's deep. And I would swirl it around a little bit. And then you'll get an accurate reading. But if you just dip it in and it's sort of shallow, it depends where you're taking the temperature. You may, in fact, have been at the right temperature, but you just couldn't measure it properly. That's the other issue. Uh-huh. Now you know everything I know. Those are great tips. Uh, I'm a novice, I have to admit, but I'm going to try again. All right. Well, thanks, Diana. Diana, thank you. You're welcome. And thank you, too. Hey, take care. Mm. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time and slowly, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Sandy from Harwich, Massachusetts. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? Well, many, many years ago, I used to cook with pine nuts. And I use them quite often. Then I developed a condition I later learned is called pine mouth. Everything I ate for about a week tasted like dirty garbage. The taste is really indescribable. It happened twice, Hmm. and I gave up pine nuts forever. I taste when I cook, so I don't really think they were rancid. Someone suggested to me that it was the country of origin, but I couldn't find any information about that, and I was hoping you could help me. Well, two things. First of all, pine nuts go bad really fast. So if you – you probably won't be eating pine nuts anytime soon, but you should keep them in the fridge. And that's true for all flowers and nuts should be refrigerated. But that's not going to cause the problem. The problem is I understand it, and I'm not an expert, is that they're different species and certain species may cause a reaction in people versus others. So you may just have run across a particular – growing a region that had a particular species of pine nut to which you're allergic. My understanding is that you're probably not allergic to all pine nuts. It just depends on the species you got hold of. So there's really no way I can tell, right? Well, I was going to say, I think from what I understand, I mean, there's like 20 different species of pine nuts. You know, they're grown in China, Ah. Korea, Russia, Afghanistan, Europe, but also in the southwest of the United States. And I've heard about this thing before, and it's related to one of the species that's grown in China. But I think you'd be pretty safe if you got them from the southwest, the pinyon. They're pretty distinctive. I think you can buy them online, and then you could be eating pine nuts again and making pesto. Wonderful. You may have solved this 30-year-long problem. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you so much. I'll look for those. Yes. Yes. Thanks, Sandra. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. 
Hi, my name is Lee Porter from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and here's my tip. Recently, I made lemon cello, which calls for lots of lemon peels. After stripping the lemons, I was left with the inside of about a dozen lemons. I put them in a bag and stored them in the freezer and thought I'd figure out something to do with them later. One night while making a pasta sauce that called for lemon juice, I thought I'd experiment with grating the frozen lemons into the sauce. It turned out great, and now I find myself shredding frozen lemons into all sorts of dishes, like risotto, salmon or chicken, potatoes, in soups, really any hot dish that calls for lemon or citrus. I hope you too can enjoy this resourceful method. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's regular contributor, Bianca Bosker. Bianca, how are you? I'm doing very well, Chris. How are you? What fascinating thing are you going to regale me with uh, this week? Well, I would like to talk about one of my favorite recipes. You take two slices of bread, you spread peanut butter on one side (laughs) and jelly on the other, and make, voila, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Now, I've always thought of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich as being kind of the perfect, unimprovable food. But I recently went down a peanut butter and jelly rabbit hole and have since developed a very serious PB&J inferiority complex. There is a variation, for example, I found from PBJ LA that not only starts with uh, round slices of bread that they put into this custom-made contraption to seal the edges and cut the crusts, but they fill it with things like salted pecan butter and apple jam with Angostura bitters and orange zest. No. Orange zest in a peanut butter sandwich. Oh, please. (laughs) Really? I haven't even told you about the, you know, toasted pineapple butter with sage, basil, cherry, tomato, jam, arugula, olive oil, balsamic. Okay, I'll stop. But I had a similar reaction. You know, does that count? No. It got me interested in, you know, what is the definition of a peanut butter sandwich? You know, where did the PB&J actually come from? Actually, I don't know anything about its origins. Aha. Well, according to the book Peanuts, the illustrious history of the Goober Pea, 1896 was the year that peanut butter sandwich recipes burst on the culinary scene. According to this book, the first one was actually in Good Housekeeping, and it called for using a meat grinder to grind peanuts into a paste Mm. and spread them on bread. Uh, That was closely followed by recipes for peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwiches, peanut butter and Worcestershire sauce sandwiches, peanut butter with cayenne pepper and paprika sandwiches. And what is also interesting about its development from there is, you know, I tend to think of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches as being simple, like a wonderfully satisfying, low-cost meal. But the early peanut butter sandwiches were actually a delicacy. They were reserved for high society functions, and they were served at all the fancy Mm. tea rooms in New York. Because peanut butter was expensive. It was expensive. It was, you know, harder to make. And so these tea rooms offered things like, uh, you know, peanut butter and pimento sandwiches, peanut butter with meat and lettuce, peanut butter with watercress. Um, So again, a little more more savory. Even there's a great old one that, that included peanut butter with edible nasturtium flowers. That started to change in the early 20th century. Peanut butter makers started coming up with uh, new manufacturing techniques that brought down the cost of peanut butter, so made it more accessible. They added more sugar to their recipes, which made it more enticing for kids. And in the 1920s, you also had 
da 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 sliced bread or the sort of commercialization of sliced bread. Well, you, you know, my, my father was born in the 20s. So in his generation, sliced bread was a novelty. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a game changer, as he can perhaps attest. You know, the 1920s was really what cemented the peanut butter sandwich as a, a part of the American diet. During the Great Depression, they were handed out in bread lines. They were also offered as part of free lunches and schools. But what about the jelly? So apparently the first uh, printed peanut butter and jelly recipe was in 1901 in a Boston cooking school magazine. It called for three very thin layers of bread and peanut paste along with currant or crab apple jelly. And the recipe creator said as far as she knew, it was original. But in retrospect, it does seem somewhat mysterious how we settled on peanut butter and jelly rather than peanut butter and Worcestershire, let's say. Um, Chris, any thoughts yes. on, on how we got there? I mean, first of all, we, we had an increasing sweet tooth since about 1900. Two, Welch's grape jelly or somebody probably got hold of this and marketed it to death, I would guess. And three, salty and sweet's just a natural. I, those are my three off-the-cuff suggestions. I love those suggestions. Um, some historians think that it was during World War II that it happened because the U.S. military rations included peanut butter and jelly. So soldiers huh. combine these things. But to people outside the United States, peanut butter and jelly is, a, is, as it turns out, a pretty perplexing combination. I hadn't realized what a uniquely American dish that is. Um, I also hadn't realized the intense fervor of debate around the proper way to actually make a PB&J. Um, I have to, of course, ask you, Chris, what, what is your go-to recipe here? Oh, I, I was going to have to correct you because you had it all wrong. Now, you have to cover both slices with peanut butter and put the jelly in between. You can't put the jelly right on the bread. I'm sorry. That's just obviously going to make it soggy. So, well, <laughs> Well, clearly you are a professional, but this also raises the question of the ingredients. There was a survey, I think it was Smucker's probably, but they found that American adults prefer white bread over any other kind of bread. Yes. Creamy over crunchy. Yes. And apparently grape jelly is the favorite, followed closely by strawberry. Uh, seedless blackberry, maybe. Mm, but yes. Interesting. Yes. No, but, you know, Al Roker once told me that it's his favorite sandwich. And I would, you know, I would have to agree. It's right up in the top two or three for me. It's a, it's the perfect thing. And when you mention people in LA messing around with it, it's just, you know, please don't. Well, I thought that at first, but hear me out. As I went further in, I got completely inspired by all of the other combinations that people have recently been making. You know, peanut butter and Doritos, peanut butter and guacamole, peanut butter and chicken liver, peanut butter with melted Hershey's Kisses and Sriracha. I mean, I was inspired, you know, maybe as a, a throwback to that 1896 paprika and cayenne. I actually started experimenting with all of the hot sauces that I could find in my fridge oh, combined please. with peanut butter. And? Would you like to know the results? I, I Actually, not really, because I think this is just absolutely <laughs> revolting. But go ahead. Well, I, do, I will say, just you know, for the record, I tried everything from Thai chili to gochujang. My favorite was PB&S, peanut butter and sriracha sandwich, oh, no. which I, I actually think is not going to dethrone the peanut butter and jelly, but 
was a lesson to me in keeping a creative mind around these old staples. Oh, I don't know. Just because you can do it, it doesn't mean that you should do it. I just think sometimes you have to think outside the box or outside the jar of jelly, as the case may be. There is perfection in the culinary universe occasionally. <laughs> and PB&J is just one of those things. So we're going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Don't mess with my PB&J. <laughs> Bianca, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was journalist Bianca Bosker. Earlier in the show, I spoke to George Motes about his favorite regional burger joints. Back in 1967, my sister and I spent the summer in Kampala, Uganda with my mother, who was there to do research. We soon found a place called Christo's. It was the only burger joint in town. The flavor of that burger was absolutely unique, almost addictive, and it's become the lost burger of my childhood. Now, Christo's is long gone, although I did find a 60s photo of the interior recently on Facebook. It's been replaced with upscale eateries. That burger haunts my dreams even today, but I guess I'm glad that it's now lost to history. You have to remember that memories taste better than the real thing. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Cookish. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. Thank you.